Now, before I get into God's word, I want to share a story with you that that I think would be beneficial, that I think will illustrate my message today somewhat. It's a story that I've shared with you in the past, so it's probably familiar to many of you, but uh, months ago, Had and my son and I uh, were were watching a movie. We decided to watch this Robert Redford movie, and uh, we thought this would be interesting. There was actually uh, a lot of drama in it about one man. As we watched this movie, we, we watched how this man who was on a sailing ship at sea, and he was overcome by a storm. It began to overtake his ship and began to sink that ship. And it was just a devastating storm. It was, it was heart-wrenching to watch him go through this struggle. And, and the rest of the movie was all about the struggle that he had at sea just to survive. And it was a difficult thing to, to watch because he constantly tried to find new ways to, to be rescued. And every time you thought he found the, the right avenue to go down to be rescued, his hopes were dashed. And it was an emotionally exhausting movie. And during his last, his last attempt to be rescued, he was so desperate that he ended up actually setting his sailing ship, his sailing vessel on fire to try to use it as a signal to seek out help from a rescue ship that he saw at a very far distance. He was drawing near, but he, he couldn't get their attention, so he set this little vessel on fire. But at the same time, this man was so physically and emotionally exhausted at this point by his constant failures to do what was required to get help, this man actually gave up. He began to drift under the water. He simply gave up on life just as the rescue ship drew near. Now, Haddon and I got so caught up in this and watching him try to survive, you know, stay alive. We, we were literally, I'm not joking, it's not hyperbole, we were literally speaking out loud to the TV saying, hold on, don't give up, swim, come to the top. But he just simply, in the movie, he just simply began to sink deeper and deeper into the sea until very dramatically the TV screen went black, completely black. 30, 40 seconds. And then suddenly, just as suddenly as it went black, the screen turned white with lights. As the rescuers plunged out of their ship into the water to draw this man out and bring him back to life. Now, at this point, Haddon and I, we were literally cheering we were, we were saying, this is amazing. What an amazing rescue. What an amazing story this is. And we did that because I think all of us love a good rescue story. All of us love to hear about how men reach out and save other men who are in difficult situations. The greater the situation, the greater the difficulty, the greater the distance that has to be bridged, the greater the story is in our understanding. Well, Paul is going to deal with something like that today in First Timothy. And we're only going to spend a few moments in First Timothy, so this is not really going to be an exposition of First Timothy. But in First Timothy 1, verses 6 to 11, Paul, Paul is 
He's talking about not a story here, but a reality. He's, he's giving a warning to the young pastor, Timothy, and he's giving him a warning that needs to be heeded because he is called on to rescue a church that is drifting. A church that's drifting because of some false teachers who were there leading this church at Ephesus a great distance away from the gospel. They were headed for a spiritual shipwreck. They were headed there because these leaders themselves had drifted away from the anchor of truth about God's law and God's gospel. Now, in order to help Timothy protect this church from drifting, Paul's going to have to explain to them that these men are trying to use the law in the wrong way. He's going to have to explain to them that when these men try to use God's law to justify and sanctify sinners, it only creates a greater distance between them and the rescuer of sinners. It does that because the law was not given to save or sanctify us. The law of God was given to show us that only the Lord Jesus Christ can bridge the gap between sinful men and a holy God and rescue us eternally and completely by his works, not ours. But what Paul shows us here in 1 Timothy 1, we'll look at verses 6 to 11. He shows us here that the, the good purpose of God's law is to point us to the greatness of our rescuer. Look at the passage here. Certain persons, these are the false teachers, by swerving or drifting from these, these principles in verse 5, love, purity of heart, good conscience, sincere faith, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, the the righteous person, but for the lawless and disobedient. For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound or healthy doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now, what I want to do is put a pause on this passage right now. I will come back to this next month in more detail. But right now, I I think it's important for us to see an illustration of what this actually is pointing toward. What he's saying when he said the law is good if you use it lawfully. So look with me at Colossians chapter 1. Go there with me in order for me to illustrate to you the greatness of our rescuer and show you how he rescued us by keeping the law for us. Colossians 
chapter 1, I'll begin reading at verse 3. I'm going to go down to verse 14. He writes to the church at Colossae. We always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God In truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled or controlled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. Now, notice these last two verses. Speaking of the father. He begins in verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transformed us or transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, in verses 13 and 14, in particular, we learn two important truths. We learn that number one. Offenders of God's law, sinners, are rescued by God the Father, and they are rescued powerfully. And secondly, we learn that offenders of God's law, sinners, are not only rescued by God the Father, they are also redeemed by God the Son, not just powerfully, but personally. This is what I I want to look at today with you, beginning there with the first thing I mentioned that we see in Colossians 1.13, that sinners are powerfully rescued by God the Father. It says, He, God the Father, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Verse 13 is very clear. It tells us that we have been transferred Or we could put it this way. We have been relocated by who? By the sovereign God of the universe, by God Almighty. He transformed us or transferred us rather. And he did so powerfully, sovereignly. He took us out of the darkness and put us in a light that we could not get to on our own. That's what a conquering king can do. And that's what he is. That's what a conquering king in the Apostle Paul's day would do as well. In Paul's day, a mighty king would come to an impoverished country, a country, if you will, in darkness and despair. He would come in. He would see their desperate situation. He would see their rulers that are abusing them. And he would come in with his mighty army and he would conquer those abusers. 
Then he would take the people from that country and he would deport them or he would relocate them or transfer them back to his country. He would take the impoverished people and place them in the riches of his kingdom. And he did that for one reason. To show them how great of a king he is. To show them the greatness of his mercy and the greatness of his glory. And in Colossians 1.13, Paul's telling us that God did that. When he conquered the domain of darkness that engulfed us, that enslaved us. God did that in a very particular way. We'll see in verse 14. He did that by sending his son to powerfully conquer sin, Satan and death for sinners like us. Now, this is important to go back to Timothy and understand what's going on there. The point of this is in Colossians is he's rejoicing in the mighty work of God, the father and God, the son and redeeming a people and doing it according to God's ordained plan and purposes. But the point is the church at Colossae and the church at Ephesus that Timothy is serving at. Neither one of those groups are filled with Christians who brought themselves out of darkness and came into the light by doing good works, keeping the law, becoming ritualistic or religious. The point of this is people who come into the light come out of the darkness because they were blind and they couldn't get out on their own. They come out because God comes after them. But God does not sacrifice his justice, his righteousness or his law To bring them into his kingdom. He satisfies all the requirements for us to make us partakers of this kingdom of light. Now, this is important as we go through this, because this is why I'm tying it back to Timothy. As he's telling them, you're using the law, but you're not using it lawfully. You're not using it correctly. What we see here in Colossians that ties back to that is, is that God knew That those who are in darkness, God knows that those who are in darkness can never escape that darkness on their own. While we're in the domain of darkness, we are what? We are spiritually, according to Ephesians 2, we are spiritually blind. We are spiritually dead. We are enslaved to sin. Romans 8 tells us that we are unable and unwilling to come out of the darkness on our own and by our own strength. We're unable to come out on our own. Because our sin controls us. We're slaves of our sinful condition. Our sins control us. And not only that, we can't come out on our own because we cannot achieve God's righteousness by our own works. We are under God's condemnation according to his law. God's law condemns us. That's what it is meant to do. It is meant to point out how far we fall short of the glory of the righteous one. So we can't come out on our own into the light because the law of God shines on us and says you are still guilty. You're condemned on your own. But what the law couldn't do in its weakness, God did in sending forth his son in human flesh for us to bring us out of the dark and into the light. God sent the light of Christ to pierce the darkness and powerfully lead us out and uphold his righteousness at the same time. 
I'm glad that God rescues sinners out of darkness, aren't you? Anybody here ever been rescued out of darkness? Yeah. I pray all of you have. We were justly condemned by our sinful condition, but God had mercy on us and sent his son to retrieve us. If God hadn't intervened, I want you to know this, and this is just the the bare theological fact. Whether you like this or not, this is what the Bible says, and this is our authority. The fact of the matter is, you would not come to know Jesus, you would not come out of your sin and your self-righteousness unless God himself intervened, according to John 6, and drew you out. Helkuo means to drag As in pulling a bucket up out of a well, he pulls you to himself. He came after you and he drew you. And he brought you into the light by his grace. If he hadn't intervened, though, all of us would still be in the kingdom of darkness, dominated by sin, depravity and death and justly condemned by the law of God. But, as Ephesians tells us, But God, but now by God's sovereign grace, every believer in this room can now rejoice in the light of Christ's kingdom because in the light of Christ's kingdom, you can now see that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because because of how God the Father brought us here. Because of how God the Father accomplished this miraculous relocation that Colossians 1.13 is talking about. Now look down at Colossians 1.14. Here, Paul's telling us or showing us how God did this. how, How God miraculously relocates us. How God the Father did that in particular here. And he says in verse 14 how he did that through Jesus He tells us that we are miraculously relocated as sinners into the kingdom of light by Christ. He says sinners are personally, secondly, sinners are personally rescued and relocated by God the Son's willing sacrifice, according to verse 14. And I'll back that up by going to Colossians 1.19 in a moment. Verse 13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Speaking of his beloved son, he says, in whom we have redemption, the purchasing back, the forgiveness of sins. Our sovereign rescue and relocation, Paul tells us here, this was funded by Jesus himself. Our sovereign rescue and relocation was paid for by God the Son. And how did He pay for it? He paid for it with His own blood. Redemption required a sacrifice. Church, this shows us, I think, what Paul's trying to point out in 1 Timothy. It doesn't show us that we can earn our favor toward God, that we can earn our way to salvation through works, through law, through morality, I think this shows us that the greatness of our rescuer is what we need to be focusing on. It shows us the greatness of our rescuer's love and his power when we read things like this. 
It doesn't point to how moral we ought to be or how moral we are. Listen, we will become righteous in Christ. We will walk in holiness as a result of this drawing and this miracle of salvation. But that's not what gets you there. What gets you there is the greatness of our rescuer. Verse 14, Paul writes that through Jesus's personal sacrifice. We have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Church, look, our sovereign relocation, again, he's saying, is paid for by God the Son's own blood. And I hope you see what that actually means. It means this, partly. That means that if God relocated us, God came after us, God the Son died in our place to redeem us and place us in His kingdom. This means that our position in that kingdom is now secured for eternity. I didn't bring myself into it. I'm not going to be able to take myself out of it. It was brought to me by God's grace. It's kept there with me because of Christ's righteousness that dwells in me. I'm eternally protected by the King. There's more even to that than this. God the Son purchased us out of darkness with His own blood personally and powerfully. And that rescue, by design, was meant to change us internally, externally, and eternally. Look on down to Colossians 1.19 to back up what I'm saying. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Speaking of Jesus. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he, speaking of Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before God the Father. You see, this this eternal redemption, this redemption that Christ brought to us through His sacrifice, it is meant to transform us, which is what the law cannot do. It doesn't have the power to do this, to change us internally, externally, and eternally. That's only the power of Christ that can do this. Just stop and think about this for a minute if you're a Christian. Just think about the greatness of our rescuer's power and his love. Just think about how he's relocated you, what your life was like before he did this, before you were relocated. You were in love with the domain of darkness. You were dominated, controlled, enslaved to sin, to Satan and to yourself. You even went so far as you became an enemy of God. You fought against His holy will, His law. Before this relocation, before this redemption, you deserved God's full and righteous wrath. But, but, due to God's grace, instead of giving us what we deserve, this just blows my mind. 
Instead of giving us what we deserve, God sent His Son into the darkness of this world to retrieve sinners like us and pay our debt personally and transform us eternally. And this is an amazing thing, saints. You sing, show us Christ. You look into the Scriptures and you see the work of Christ. You should be amazed by this. Who are you that the Son of God would come and take your place? Well, you are one whom Christ died for because of God's electing grace. Because He chose you. Not because you're better than anyone else. Not because you're smarter than anyone else. Not because you know more than anyone else when it comes to religion. Not because of your works or your goodness or your good deeds in the future. He did this to magnify the greatness of His grace and the power of His Son's sacrifice to save wretches like us and make us treasures of His grace, trophies of His grace. And He did that by crucifying His Son to satisfy His righteous requirements that we have failed to obey time and time again. Listen, every one of you in this room, including me, and especially me because I can speak personally for me, you have failed to honor the law of God multiple times this morning. I guarantee it. First and foremost, have you loved God with all of your entire being from the time you woke up this morning? Were you thinking of Him Seeking to serve Him, seeking to honor Him, abstaining from any kind of immorality in your thought life or in your attitude or in your actions. No. You've fallen short. The law would say you are condemned. But in God's grace, Christ says, I took the penalty for you so you could now no longer be condemned. You could now be loved by God for eternity because of me. I satisfied His requirements personally. To make you my child for eternity. See, if you don't use the law lawfully, you become a Pharisee. You're one who becomes a self-righteous judge of others because they don't meet your standards. Listen, there are standards in the Christian faith. In the Old Testament, 620-something whatever commands. In the New Testament, over 1,400 or 1,200 at least commands in the New Testament. There are standards. But praise God, they're all met by Christ. And where I fall short, He never did. I trust in Christ. I look to Christ when I fall short because it brings back to my mind the greatness of God's grace. And that is what leads to sanctification and holiness. Not me trying to earn my way to God's favor through my obedience. I want to obey because of what He's done for me. Because He is worthy. And I see that when I look at things like this. On the cross... Jesus Christ, the spotless, sinless Lamb of God, was treated as if He was the filthiest sinner in this room because of our guilt, our sin, and also because of God's great rescuing love. False teachers in 1 Timothy missed this. They abused the law. They misused the law. They twisted the law. God's law is meant to point to this. It's meant to point to the greatness of our rescuer because as sinners, we cannot meet these demands. We can't meet the law's demands in any way, any shape or fashion. We can't. Listen, 
Paul says at one point in his life that he was as to righteousness. He was perfect. He was mature. He was great. But he's talking about externally. Because later on in that same passage in Philippians, he says, but I counted all of my righteousness as manure, excrement compared to knowing Christ. Seeing the righteousness of God in Christ made his outward acts be what they truly were in God's sight to him. He saw them clearly because he knew in his heart he was not actually pursuing righteousness for the glory of God, but for the praise of men. That, I believe, is what's happening in First Timothy as well with the false teachers. But understand, when we read things like we see here in Colossians, we recognize very clearly what Paul's trying to get across in First Timothy about using the law lawfully. Sinners cannot meet the law's demands. It's very clear in this passage that only the spotless Lamb of God in human flesh could have satisfied God's righteous demands and pay our debt in full in the flesh. It had to be done that way because man had sinned against God. Man had broken God's law. Therefore, man must pay the penalty for breaking the law of God. But God says in his mercy, I have provided one to take your place. My own son. Who happens to be the king of glory. He'll come as a peasant. He'll humble himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. To uphold my justice and show you my love personally. Jesus, God incarnate. We know lived a completely obedient life to God, the father. He lived in complete obedience to God's righteous law. And Jesus did not just do it outwardly. He did it from the heart. And you know why he did that from the heart? Because we don't. He is our substitute in righteousness. He lives that way because we can't. Because sin has riddled us with all kinds of problems. Love for ourselves. Love for this world. And every time we think we're doing good, we find there's, there's a hole in our holiness. And so Jesus comes and He does what we can't. He lives a life of complete obedience to God's law from the heart for us. It's His positive righteousness that we see in that. But then, Jesus, God the Son, didn't stop there. He not only lived a completely obedient life for us. He went on to receive God the Father's full wrath against our sins for us. He not only came to satisfy the righteous requirements of our Father who calls us to be obedient. He also came to pay the penalty to our Father for our disobedience. Did He deserve that? Absolutely not. If there was one man who never should have died, it would have been Jesus, the God man, holy and righteous and undefiled in every way. Yet he willingly humbled himself to take our place. To die our death, to pay our wage. The wage that we have earned because of our sin. I want you to know this. When God, the father looked upon God, the son on the cross, he didn't have this sympathetic, emotional reaction in the sense of going, oh, I really, I, you know, I see 
Darren's sin. I see Jennifer's sins. I see Sherry's sins. But I don't really want to punish you for all of that. You're my son. So I'm going to hold back a little. That is not what we see in Scripture testified to. Had he done that, none of you that I named could be saved. The full wrath against your unrighteousness had to be let loose on Jesus to pay your sin penalty. That is exactly what happened here. God, the Father, looked upon His Son and He did not withhold one ounce of His holy wrath when He looked upon His Son because you know what? He saw all those that Christ came to die for, their sins laid upon Jesus' account. And God the Father said, Be damned! And every one of our sins were damned to hell for eternity. He condemned them, but not the man Jesus Christ. They were damned. Those sins were condemned. We were guilty. And he says, it's true, you are guilty, but my son is going to pay your penalty. He took our place. He paid our penalty in the flesh. The whole vial of God's righteous indignation and anger toward our sins and our condemnation for eternity was poured out on the lamb that was slain in our place. That's why Paul wrote what he wrote in Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, immersed into Christ at the cross. You were baptized with him through the cross into salvation. He was taking your place. You were there with him. And he was righteously satisfying God's requirements to give you a righteousness that you can't earn through law keeping. This was what was required to satisfy God's justice and uphold his righteousness of the law that we have failed to obey. That was never meant to make us righteous, but always point us to Jesus. That's why John the Baptist cried out when he saw Jesus the first time. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John knew all his works could not wash away the sins of the Pharisees and the Jews in his day. He was making a way. He was pointing to Jesus. These things point to the ultimate cleansing that will come through Jesus' immersion on the cross where your sins are being poured upon him and his righteousness comes to you by God's grace. That's why Christ came. Christ came to fulfill the law's demands for us. Because Jesus was both the Lamb of God and the scapegoat. Jesus was both the Lamb of God who lived the perfect life that we could never live, reconciling us to God personally and powerfully. And Jesus was also the scapegoat that carried away, expiated our sins, carried away our sins, releasing us from God's wrath. And sin's guilt completely and eternally. That was God's eternal plan that the law pointed to in the Old Testament. And we see that laid out in an illustration in Leviticus. Go there with me. Leviticus 16. Here in Leviticus 16, we see what these symbols are pointing to now in Jesus. We see God's divine rescue plan His use of the law laid out here to illustrate 
the ultimate work that Christ would come to do. Leviticus 16, I'll give you a minute to get there. Beginning in verse 6. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azel, the scapegoat. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering, a propitiation, appeasement offering, an appeasing of God's wrath against sin temporarily till Christ came. But then he says in verse 10, but the goat on which the lot fell for Azel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement. This is expiation. He's going to talk about over it. That it may be sent away, expiated, sent away into the wilderness of Azel. Basically, to send it away for absolute removal. As far as the east is from the west. Then look down at verse 20. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat and Aaron shall lay both his hands. Notice verse 21. He shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the peoples of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness, the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. This is picturing Christ carrying away our sins by his propitiation. The sins of Israel here were symbolically being credited or passed on to this goat when this priest would lay his hands on the head of the goat and confess the sinfulness and the guilt of the people. Then the goat was led into the wilderness to carry the sins away forever. Church, this was symbolic of what the Lamb of God did for us on the cross. You may think I'm weird, but the reason I went from Timothy to to Colossians, one, I'm pressed for time every week to try to prepare. But two, there was no way for me to help you feel the weight of verse eight in chapter one of Timothy unless you understand this. You've got to know this. You've got to understand there's a proper way that the law was created to be used and there's an improper one. You see, this is the proper use, even symbolically. We know this is pointing us to Jesus. This wasn't really taking away their sins. It was symbolic of what God would do through the one they trusted in that was represented in these goats. It was Jesus who was the substance of this shadow. Jesus was the one who was led outside into the wilderness at Golgotha and There, our sins were pressed down upon his head by God the Father to rescue sinners like us. That's what this is picturing. You see how foreign this is from trying to earn salvation? There is no way to do this. You can't get rid of your sin stain. Only God can grant you a way to get rid of that through Christ. 
Look at Isaiah 53 real quickly. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 10. Notice this carefully phrased sentence, how it ties to Colossians 1, 13 and 14. Yet it was the will of the Lord, that would be God the Father, to crush him. That would be God the Son. The word crush is dakah. It means to trample underfoot. To destroy. He has put him to grief. When his soul, speaking of Jesus, makes an offering for guilt, propitiation, appeasement. He shall see his offspring. He shall see the fruit of what his accomplishments have brought forth, which would be the salvation of his people. He will prolong his days. After death, this servant would reign again and live forever as the sovereign king, right? And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, out of the agony of his soul, God the Father shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant Christ, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. and He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. It's an amazing testimony of God's love. It's amazing that God, the father, would press down our sins on God, the son to pay our penalty. Do you understand that on the cross, your sins and God's wrath against your sins are what crushed the life out of Jesus? But it's also God's grace and God's purpose to bring life to those he atoned for through Jesus. Because Jesus did not stay in the grave. You'll see the greatness of our rescuer and what he accomplished. He released us from darkness. And he did that by taking our sins upon himself and carrying our sin guilt to the cross personally. Dying our death and appeasing God's wrath for us powerfully. And amazingly, three days later, he rose from the grave victoriously to display and declare for eternity that his sacrifice and his obedience in our place was acceptable unto God the Father for us. Therefore, there is no way there's going to be any condemnation for those who are in Christ. He did everything for the glory of God the Father. Everything we're required to do, He did from the heart. And He pursued this as His greatest joy. He even set His face toward the cross with joy, anticipating the fruit of His labor, bringing praise to God the Father. And through Him, we are now acceptable. No law can do that. No law can make you acceptable to God. You better understand that. If you want to stand before a holy and righteous God on the basis of your obedience or morality, you will stand there being condemned for eternity. Only if you stand under the blood-soaked righteous robes of Christ can you enter into His presence with joy and assurance. So I have to ask you an important question this morning. Do you believe that Jesus did all this for you? 
He satisfied God's righteous requirements in obedience and in death and rose victoriously and was accepted in your place. Do you believe he did that? Do you believe he did that personally for you and powerfully for you? Is that your hope this morning? Do you believe that he paid the full sin debt that you owe to God for eternity? He paid for it completely in his life and his death and his resurrection. Do you believe that has been atoned for? Well, let's be practical for a minute. Do your actions reveal that? Do, do you respond to this truth like one who has been atoned for? Are you still trying to appease God when you fall short of his law? Do you still try to balance the scales? You say you believe Jesus took your sins and died for you on the cross and rose victoriously in your place and was accepted by God the Father, but you're still trying to right your own wrongs, balance those scales. You're still trying to follow God's law as a form of righteousness or appeasement to God for the things that you have done wrong. If that's the case, you're using the law unlawfully. A quick test of that is when you sin, do you quickly try to find ways to do good things to cover up the bad things you just did? Do you quickly try to soothe your conscience by doing a good thing or a good deed? Or opening your Bible and pretending to read like spiritually? To cover up the, the sinful thing you've just done? If you're doing that, you are not understanding the reality of the grace of God in Christ Jesus and His full satisfaction that He achieved in His works. And you're trying to trust in your own. And saints, I'll tell you this, if you're doing that as a Christian, you're going to be a frustrated person. You will not grow in joy and peace and understanding until you let go of your righteousness, your self-righteousness, and you cling to Christ. You rest in Christ. That's what the law was given to remind us of. The law was given to point out our insufficiency and Christ's sufficiency. I hope you get what I'm trying to say this morning. God's acceptance of you and I is not based on our performance, our obedience, our goodness, our morality. It's based on the greatness of our rescuer's grace. God's unmerited, unearned, and undeserved favor that comes to us through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. My acceptance before God is based on that. And I need to rest in that. We need to all rest in the fact that salvation is a gift that God alone can give and likes to give. He is a good and sovereign God. He's willing to give the gift of salvation to all who see themselves correctly in the light of his holy law. It's the light that shines on the darkness and exposes us to our need of a savior. It shows us how great of a sinner we are and it shows us how great of a savior we have in Jesus. And we but must turn to him, trust in him and not ourselves to find the joy that comes through this knowledge. The law reveals the law reminds me of my great failures every day. Even as a Christian. The law is good in that way for both the sinner and the saint. The law is good because it points out the greatness of my sin. At the same time, it points me quickly to the greatness of my Savior, my Rescuer. 
God's law was given to point us to the gospel. And I thank God that he uses the law that way to point me back to Jesus again and again and again. Because, listen, I just keep on sinning. I still have indwelling sin to deal with in my flesh. And if I didn't have Jesus to look for, I would give up. I have nowhere to go but Christ. He has the words of life. He is the word of life. I need the gospel daily because the gospel protects me from doubting God's love for me when I fail him daily. You guys ever struggle with that? You ever feel like you're a heathen and you think God must be far from me? You know, you pull back from God when you sin, but he is still present. And his law is meant to draw you back, expose how guilty you are and look how great the Savior is. And come back knowing he satisfied God the Father for me. If you're still struggling, though, this morning, and you're doubting God's love for you because you have failed to obey his commands, let me just say this. I think you need to think about the great rescue story we have there in Colossians 1, 13, and 14. As you think about that, I, I would ask you to respond in obedience to Christ. Listen, the gospel is not an invitation. The gospel is a command. You must repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved. And so I command you in Jesus' name, if you have not done so, that you would cry out to God. Ask him to grant you the power to repent of your sin. And importantly, also repent of your self-righteousness that thinks you can earn favor with God by your own works. Pray and ask him. To grant you faith, to trust that he can rescue you out of your sinful condition powerfully through what Christ has done for sinners like all of us in this room very personally. And I just pray this morning that these words will encourage your heart, if you're a believer, to rest in the work of Christ and look at the law of God with new eyes. And see it as a joyful reminder of the greatness of our Savior. And if you are not a believer this morning, I pray that these words will remind you you're going to have to stand and give an account before a holy and righteous God who will not take anything less than perfection. And your only hope is in Jesus. So turn to Him and be saved today, I pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your grace. Thank You for how You work within our minds, our hearts, our conscience through your law to expose our sins and then turn us quickly to Jesus as the hope for sinners. The one who was never lawless, the one who was always righteous, the one who was our atoning sacrifice that made us right in your eyes by his works, by his life. God, I pray that we can rest in that, rest in knowing that we were condemned in our sins and he paid the penalty and took that penalty upon himself to set us free to serve you in joy. And to see your law the way the psalmist saw it now. We love it, Lord, because it, it points out you are sweet and righteous and great. Because you have fulfilled it in the work of your son for us. To make us heirs of his kingdom. We pray and ask you to bless this day in Jesus name. Amen.